1: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show Podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on ninety three point nine k p d q We hope you enjoy the show
2: well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to be back in studio i've had quite a morning. We had a pipe burst, cleaning up the mess from that. My mother lives in a basement apartment in our home, and i didn't want her to have to uh, i didn't want her to have to swim. Uh, when she got up this morning, so spending a lot of time on my hands and knees sopping up water. Turns out um, that the pipe hadn't burst, but there were some other things that needed to be done. So uh, that made it possible to come in today, uh, although there was a sheet of ice on our a driveway that is sloped. So getting onto the street to get here was something of an ordeal. So I have to tell you, I'm quite grateful to be here today in studio. Where I belong on a Thursday afternoon. Well, today we're looking forward to a conversation with Washington Representative Andrew Barkas. He is a representative of the 2nd Legislative District. He's introduced a bill to crack down on illegal highway blockades with tougher penalties and other things that will make it uh, more painful should they decide to to do that. He'll be joining us later this hour. And then for those of you in the Portland area, we'll talk with Wendy Palau. She's one of the keynote speakers at the upcoming Mission Connection here in Portland. Uh, she'll be speaking on Friday night. But Mission Connection, to which you are all invited, by the way, is Saturday, Friday night and Saturday at Sunset Church here in Portland. Attendance is free. Registration is required, and you can get more information at missionconnection.global. dot global. But first, to look at some of the day's. The last few days, headlines. Well, the Senate passed a second laddered short-term spending bill. It's known as a continuing resolution, or CR, to fund the government agencies through March. Well, the House is now going to vote on the legislation to avert a government shutdown by Friday. They're expecting perhaps late uh, this evening. Senators passed the bill with bipartisan majority of 77 to 18, voting for the uh, continuing resolution on Thursday afternoon. The House is expected to take up the bill later Tonight and a possible vote tomorrow. There will not be a shutdown on Friday because both sides have worked together. The government will stay open. Services will not be disrupted. We will avoid a needless disaster. So says Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer on the floor on Thursday ahead of the vote in the Senate. Avoiding a shutdown is very good news for every American, especially for our veterans, our parents, children, farmers, small business and so many others who would have felt the sting of a government shutdown, he said. Well, the previous continuing resolution that Congress passed in November, it funded federal agencies with dual expiration dates. The first set of funding expiration was the 19th. That's tomorrow. And the second run out on February 2nd. Well, the proposed continuing resolution will follow the same structure, the one that the Senate just passed, as the current funding bill. But it pushes the expiration dates for government spending to March the 1st and March the 8th, respectively. Well, the continuing resolution continues funding for four appropriations bills through March the 1st. That's agriculture, rural development, food and drug administration, energy and water development, military construction, veterans affairs and transportation, housing and urban development. Also, the continuing resolution allocates funds for the remaining eight appropriations bills through the 8th of March. And they include commerce, justice, science, defense, financial services, general government. Homeland Security, Interior, Environment, Labor and Health, uh, Education, Legislative Branch, State and Foreign Operations. Well, several amendments to the continuing resolution were um, rejected by senators, including Senator Rand Paul's proposal to freeze Palestinian aid until Hamas hostages are released. Well, the aim is um, uh, aim of having two separate deadlines is to prevent Congress from passing a comprehensive omnibus spending bill, a practice widely opposed by Republicans because they're large, they're unwieldy, and nobody knows what's in them. And what is in them is oftentimes quite frightening. The staggering approach uh, may not eliminate the possibility of an omnibus, said uh, Senator Rick Scott, a member of the upper chambers committee on the budget. Uh, In an interview this week, he believes Schumer and Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell uh, are likely to advocate for another omnibus this year, since only three of the 12 spending bills the Senate Appropriations Committee approved have been passed. So we'll see what happens next. What we do know is the House will take up this continuing resolution, if not tonight, tomorrow. And that will push things back until March. Well, a group of international religious freedom experts are calling for Secretary of State Anthony Blinken to testify before a congressional hearing about the State Department's decision to exclude Nigeria and India from a list of nations with severe violations of religious freedom. Well, in a letter sent on Wednesday, first obtained by the Daily Signal... More than 40 religious freedom experts and organizations pointed out that since 2009, more than 50,000 Christians have been killed in Nigeria and 18,000 churches and 2,500 Christian schools have been attacked. They also cited India, where they say that between 200 and 400 churches and 3,500 Christian homes have been attacked just since last May. Well, as human rights and international religious freedom leaders, we stand in support of the United States Commission on International Religious Freedom and their call for a congressional hearing into the State Department's exclusion of Nigeria and India from the countries of particular concern list, the letter states. Nigeria and India have been rocked by alarming instances of religious violence and persecution. The religious freedom advocates insisted, pursuant to the International Religious Freedom Act, both countries meet the statu- statutory definition of engaging in or tolerating particularly severe violations of religious freedom to be designated as CPC. They should be designated as such, end quote. Well, a country of particular concern can be so designated by the secretary of state if a nation is engaged in such severe violations of religious freedom under the International Religious Freedom Act, of 1998, well, under then President Donald Trump's administration, Nigeria was designated as a CPC. President Joe Biden's administration removed that designation, and it's not clear why. Letter in support of the USCIRFS call for congressional hearing final download uh, was sent to the uh, the White House. The religious freedom experts emphasize that it's imperative for the United States to actively address these issues and assure that the principles of religious freedom are upheld globally. Accountability and transparency are essential to understanding the State Department's rationale for declining to designate Nigeria and India. The letter continued, We urge the House Foreign Affairs Committee and the Senate uh, Foreign Relations Committee to convene hearings to thoroughly examine the reasons behind the exclusion of Nigeria and India from the CPC list. Secretary of State Anthony Blinken must answer to Congress and the American people. End quote. Well, signers of that letter include International Christian Concern, McKenna Went, former Representatives Frank Wolf and, uh, Republic- and uh, Representative Dan Burton, International Religious Freedom Secretariat, President Nadine Mainza, and the Family Research Council, Layla Gil- uh, Gilbert, William Murray, Chairman of the Religious Freedom Coalition, and others. The State Department has not yet responded to a request for comment on this letter. In other news, the 2020 election involved a criminal voter fraud scheme with the mass absentee ballots and phony voter registrations, according to the Justice Department and the New Jersey Attorney General. This verdict and indictment happened in 2023. Prosecutors in Massachusetts and New York brought election fraud charges in the closing weeks of December. Well, the Justice Department secured a guilty verdict against a congressional candidate's spouse, uh, Kim Taylor, From a federal jury in November in Sioux City, Iowa, on 52 counts regarding causing absentee ballots to be fraudulently requested and cast that occurred in two elections. Kim Taylor's husband, Jeremy Taylor, ran unsuccessfully in the 2020 Republican primary. For the U.S. House of Representatives in Iowa's fourth congressional district, then ran successfully in the general election to be reelected as Woodbury County Supervisor. When well, the late October, New Jersey Attorney General Matthew Platkin, he announced that Patterson City Council President Alex Mendez is facing more charges in his election fraud case stemming from a 2020 race. Mendez was previously indicted in 2021 regarding actions in the election. Well, the Attorney General's office alleges Mendez Uh, He personally uh, collected ballots and oversaw the fraudulent mailing of ballots, while members of his campaign stole ballots from residential mailboxes and discarded several that did not cast a vote for their candidate. Mendez had three co-conspirators, according to the prosecutor. As explained... um, Uh, In these fraud cases, they're more easily detectable in some states than in others. And far too often remedies to curb absentee ballot fraud are unfairly smeared. Some high profile stories have prompted Democratic politicians and much of the media to trot out their talking points that voter fraud is a farce. Another talking point is that those uh, rascally red states are prosecuting election fraud cases as a means to infringe on voting rights. But in the last quarter of 2023, related indictments and adjudicated court cases incurred in various states. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up later this hour, Washington State Representative Andrew Barkus will join us. He represents the second legislative district on a bill he's introduced to crack down on illegal highway blockades. We'll tell you more about that effort and why he thought it was necessary. That's coming up later this hour. Well, the Biden administration health officials targeted Republican led states for audits last year over how they uh, police their Medicaid programs, even though medical providers in several blue states, including California, seemingly operate their programs similarly, according to emails and records. Well, the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, or CMS, targeted three red states, Florida, Florida. Texas and Missouri for audits and enforcement last year as part of an effort to crack down on what they now contend is an improper use of Medicaid dollars, according to emails obtained by the Government Accountability and Oversight, a Wyoming nonprofit and government watchdog. Well, the nonprofit's leaders argue that nearly 3000 pages of emails and records they've obtained reveal a strong case that the Biden's uh, administration's uh, Centers for Medicare and Medicaid um, politically targeted red states with audits with a primary focus on Florida. The emails show that CMS officials ramped up their efforts to target uh, that state at the same time that its governor, Ron DeSantis, looked as if he could be a serious challenger to President Joe Biden in 2024. In the emails from early 2023, which the nonprofit has posted online, The uh, uh, CMS leaders said that they were operating on a tight timeline and that Florida is the only state we have concern on, even though the agency was aware that other states have similar hospital arrangements, end quote. But while CMS's enforcement actions against Florida coincided with DeSantis' rising profile as a presidential contender, the emails don't contain any explicit political intentions. Well CMS's audit in Florida and Texas remain incomplete and those states have held up CMS's effort in court. If it was politically uh, motivated, the Biden administration's move to crack down on Florida nevertheless received little notice from the media and does not appear to have affected the governor's diminished political trajectory. The DeSantis campaign has not made any mention of the issue. Well, still, Chris Horner, who's an attorney for the nonprofit Watchdog, said that the body of emails uh, his organization obtained just screams weaponization of the federal government. CMS targeted Florida at the same time Governor DeSantis' candidacy to be the Republican presidential nominee was ascendant, and the media was reporting that the prospect of facing upstart Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis is prompting whispers of angst within Democratic circles. Orner said in an email to National Review. Well, he added that the effort by CMS sprang out of nowhere and the emails that the nonprofit obtained indicate it was part of a politicization, weaponization of Medicaid funding against a trio of states who have been the bane of the administration. CMS did not respond to requests for comment from National Review uh, made through its agency website and by phone. Uh, We do know that there are other states who use the a Precise same process with their Medicaid, Medicare, but they were of little concern to the administration or its agency. Well, the National Sanctity of Human Life Day is coming up. That's January 22nd, 2024. And there are several events celebrating life in the nation's capital beginning this week. Well, in response to the U.S. Supreme Court's 1973 Roe versus Wade decision that allowed for the nationwide killing of unborn babies, the annual March for Life rally was established to celebrate life and advocate for protecting women and unborn babies. Well, since this year marks the 51st year since that infamous decision and the 51st annual March for Life, it will take place on Friday the 19th this uh, this week the rally will begin at noon at the national mall in washington dc and then participants will march to the capitol well according to the march for life it's the largest annual human rights rally in the world where tens of thousands of pro-life supporters gather on the national mall to celebrate each and every life from the moment of conception well since the high court finally overturned roe versus wade and the 1992 Planned Parenthood of Southwestern Pennsylvania versus Casey abortion decisions on the 24th of June last year, rather 22. This year's March for Life will be the second such event in the post-Roe America. It's not quite as rosy as pro-lifers had hoped, but there is hope of things getting better. Well, the theme of the 2024 March for Life is With Every Woman, For Every Child – which focuses on caring for both the mother and the child throughout pregnancy and beyond. The March for Life is about expressing the beauty of every human life and changing hearts and minds to end abortion. The March for Life is not just a remembrance of the millions of lives lost to abortion over the last 51 years, but a celebration of the inherent human dignity in all human life and the victories achieved in protecting that life. Liberty Council Senior Counsel for Government Affairs Jonathan Alexander he uh, is going to be a part of that event, that rally and march. This year's rally will host a range of speakers, including former NFL tight end Benjamin Watson, Jim Daly, president and CEO of Focus on the Family, and uh, Pastor Greg Laurie of Harvest Christian Fellowship and his wife, Kathy. Uh, also on that list, Danny Gokey, three-time Grammy nominee, will perform leading up to the noon rally, including singing the national anthem. Well, on Monday, the 22nd, The actual anniversary at 10 a.m., Faith and Liberty will host prayers and remembrance victims of Roe on the west side of the Supreme Court. 3,000 flowers will be placed on the sidewalk in front of the, the high court during the event to represent the American babies that are killed every day by abortion and the women who have been harmed from an abortion since 1973. That infamous decision. Speakers will offer reflection, prayers and or Bible verses to honor the sanctity of life. And again, that's flanking the weekend with the March for Life coming up on Friday this week. And on Monday, the uh, national uh, recognition of the sanctity of human life, there will be an event outside the U.S. Supreme Court. Well, Republicans are teeing up two measures that signal their opposition to abortion ahead of the annual March for Life, but for the second year in a row are focusing not on abortion bans, but on issues uh, related to unwanted pregnancies in the wake of the Supreme Court's 2022 decision overturning Roe v. Wade. Well, the annual anti-abortion rally, the annual pro-life rally that attracts thousands in Washington is traditionally used as a time to message and a pro-life message. This will be the first year. With Speaker Mike Johnson setting the House's agenda for the week of March, of the March, Johnson and House Pro-Life Caucus Chairman Christopher Smith are both slated to address the event on Friday. This week's vote follows separate markups last week on the legislation tied to resources for pregnant women. It is a, a wonderful thing to be on this side of the other side of Roe versus Wade. But there is, as you probably recognize by now, much to do. Much to do before we can rejoice at the protection and the sanctity of human life being recognized all across the fruited plain. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Just a reminder, coming up in our next segment, we'll talk with Representative Andrew Barkas. He represents the 2nd Legislative District in the state of Washington. He's introduced a bill to crack down on illegal highway blockades. We'll find out what's happening with that piece of legislation in the short legislative cycle uh, there in Washington and uh, what you can do if you'd like to weigh in on the subject. So that's coming up. Well, New York Post columnist Cindy Adams warned in a piece published on Wednesday that Americans shouldn't be shocked if Michelle Obama sneaks her way into the 2024 race. Now, does she know something the rest of us don't? Again, we're talking about a columnist, New York Post. Well, plans are to grab Michelle for the Democratic presidential uh, presidency choice. Make the music uh, is um, Barack the orchestra leader. Adams uh, wrote the Obamas are now nudging to force slow-mo Joe to go drop out. It's like who else is there? End quote. Well, Adams said that President Biden won't debate and said the Obama drumbeat has gotten louder. A Joe flop out offers probability. Uh, Michelle could wiggle in. Obama's negotiating to make that happen, she added. Now again, does she know something or is she just writing? Uh, what's on the top of her head. Adam cited a recent media appearance by Michelle Obama. The former first lady recently revealed she was terrified Donald Trump might win in 2024 during an interview with Jay Shetty's On Purpose podcast. Those are the things that keep me up because you don't have control over them. And you wonder, where are we in this? Where are our hearts? What's going to happen in this next election? She said she asked, I am terrified about what could possibly happen because our leaders matter uh, who we select, who speaks for us, who holds that bully pulpit affects us in ways that sometimes I think people take for granted, end quote. Well, former President Obama has also voiced concern over Biden's poll numbers. The Wall Street Journal reported in December that Obama is among those on the left to fear a return of Trump to the presidency. Well, it's a very long list. Obama knows this is going to be a. A close race and feels that Democrats very well could lose, the report stated, noting the information came from a person familiar with his Obama's thinking. Mm. Well, the former president also reportedly worries that the alternative to Biden on the Republican side would be pretty dangerous for democracy. Of course, that's the tactic that the Democrats have chosen this time around is uh, unless we win, we're all going to die. Well, the truth is we're all going to die. It's just not going to be on, you know, the day after the election. Well, the Washington Post reported recently that President Obama has expressed concern over the structure of Biden's campaign and became animated during a discussion about the election with Biden. Obama has raised questions about the structure of the president's reelection campaign, discussing the matter directly with the president and telling the president's aides and allies the campaign needs to be empowered to make decisions without clearing them with the White House. The outlet reported which is perhaps more telling than anything else. Anyway, we'll keep our eyes open, our ears poised, but we won't know what's going to happen until, well, it actually happens. Well, the Supreme Court unceremoniously denied review on Tuesday in a case that would have clarified once and for all whether separate uh, bathrooms based on biological sex violates either Title IX of the Education Amendment of 1972 or the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Now, who would have thought... Uh, Who uses which toilet uh, would make a uh, make a case for the equal protection clause of the Constitution? Well, now the nation must wait with bated breath for publication of the Department of Education's final Title IX rule. The Biden administration rule promises to upend decades of sex equality and education by allowing students in a federally funded school to use the bathroom that corresponds with their gender identity rather than their biological sex. Now, one could just decide one day that they're one thing and another something else. Well, in the case Martinsville School District versus AC, a biological girl who identified as a boy sought access to the boys restrooms at her middle school. For the policy of Indiana's Martinsville School District, the girl's requests were denied. However, she was permitted access to a single use, gender neutral bathroom. Unsatisfied, She wanted to make a point, apparently. The student filed a lawsuit claiming that the school district's bathroom policy was discriminatory and a violation of civil rights and constitutional law, none of which she probably understood on her own. Both the uh, Federal Trial Court and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Seventh Circuit enjoined the school district's policy and permitted the student's bathroom access according to her gender identity. Well, in uh, increasing measure, however, challenges to educational institutions, such as those in Martinsville's case, have resulted in widely varied outcomes across the country. The en Blanc 11th Circuit Court of Appeals, for example, has held that neither Title IX nor the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause deprives schools of the ability to maintain bathrooms separated by biological sex. But both the 4th and the 7th Circuits have held the opposite, concluding that both Title IX and the Equal Protection Clause prohibit schools from denying student access to bathrooms corresponding to their gender identity. Now, many court watchers credit one particular Supreme Court decision as the pebble that triggered an avalanche of legal battles over the meaning of sex in federal law. The 2020 decision in Bostock versus Clayton County, Georgia. Well, in an opinion by Justice Neil Gorsuch, the court in Bostock interpreted the word sex entitled seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which prohibits employment discrimination to include gender identity In excoriating the majority of justices in Bostock for legislating instead of interpreting Justice Samuel Alito in a dissenting opinion predicted future challenges like those at Martinsville's case Writing what the court has done today, interpreting discrimination because of sex to encompass discrimination because of sexual orientation or gender identity is virtually certain to have far reaching consequences. Over 100 federal statutes prohibit discrimination because of sex. The briefs in these cases have called to our attention the potential effects that the court's reasoning may have under some of these laws. But the court waves those considerations aside. As to Title Seven itself, the court dismisses questions about bathrooms, locker rooms or anything else of the kind, and it declines to say anything about other statutes whose terms mirror Title Seven's. The court's brusque refusal to consider the consequence of its reasoning is irresponsible. Before issuing today's radical decision, the court should have given some thought to where its decision would lead. As the briefing in these cases has warned, the position that the court now adopts will threaten freedom of religion, freedom of speech and personal privacy and safety. End quote. Well, Martinsville School District versus AC seemed to be an ideal vehicle for to remedy the Bostock dilemma. In fact, the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals is in issuing its decision on behalf of the transgender student wrote litigation over transgender rights is occurring all over the country. And we assume that at some point the Supreme Court will step in and with more guidance uh, offer direction than it has furnished so far. End quote. Alas, the public and the federal courts might wait a little longer for that guidance. The Supreme Court appears generally allergic to transgender-related issues, having regularly turned down similar disputes. Well, the high court declined to take up a student's challenge to a Virginia school bathroom policy in Grimm versus Gloucester County School Board in 2021. Well, last year, the court declined to intervene to enforce West Virginia's ban on transgender athletes. And in June, it declined to disturb a ruling favoring a transgender identifying man who claimed he was deprived by the government of his hormone treatment while in jail. But there may still be time for clarification during this Supreme Court term on the perimeters of transgender rights under the state and federal law. Still pending in petitions for review before the high court are four more cases implicating gender identity. One is a challenge to a state court's removal of a self-identified transgender child from the care of fit Christian parents because of their refusal to accept the minor child's gender identity. The other two cases ask the court to determine whether parents have a constitutional right to secure experimental gender-affirming care, that's genital surgery, cross-sex hormones, puberty blockers, for their minor child in states of Tennessee and Kentucky. In the final case, a group of parents is asking the court to determine whether a public school's policy is unconstitutional and hiding information about the expressed gender identity of minor school children from their parents. Well around the time that Supreme Court's term winds down in June, the Biden administration will release its much anticipated Title IX rule expanding longstanding protections for girls and young women in K through twelve schools and college institutions to uh, any boy or young man who identifies as a woman. Well, at that point, the Supreme Court may have no choice but to finally weigh in. The sooner, the better, but already not soon enough. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with Representative Andrew Barkas, representing the second legislative district in the state of Washington, and a bill he's introduced that would crack down on illegal highway blockades. They had one in Seattle, lasted five hours. We'll be back.
1: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, in an effort to bring a permanent end to highway blockades that endanger lives, cripple commutes, and undermine law and order, Washington State Second District Representative Andrew Barkas introduced legislation into the Washington legislature that would inflict tougher penalties on those taking part in such illegal activity. It comes in response to recent protests that shut down Interstate 5 in Seattle, causing five hours of gridlock and pulling police officers away from their regular duties. Well, joining us to talk about that is Representative Andrew Barkas. Again, he represents the second legislative district in the state of Washington. He is serving his fourth term as a state representative. Thank you so much for joining us today.
3: Uh, thank you for the opportunity. Uh, it's a beautiful rainy day here in the Northwest <laughs> and uh, busy here at the state capital in Washington. Well,
2: I'm certain that is the case. Let's, uh, let's get a little bit of the backstory. What prompted uh, your introduction of House Bill 2358, the event that took place uh, literally stopping traffic on I-5 yeah. in the Seattle area?
3: Well, I think like most people in our state and in, in, in the region, we're just getting tired of seeing this, this lawlessness that's going on everywhere. And I watched the news as everybody else, mm-hmm. uh, the traffic block, police, you know, in harm's way, an ambulance sitting there blocked. And I thought to myself, oh, my gosh, you know, what's going on here? And so it just went on and on and on. I came into the office uh, that first of week. And I started asking some questions about, you know, what's the law now? Why isn't it being enforced? What is it? And it's it's a misdemeanor. And so it's just, to me, not enough teeth in the law to hold these people accountable. So I got with staff, we drafted this, we looked at increasing those penalties and put it in place so that hopefully we would have a tool, law enforcement would have a tool that they could use to hold people accountable to possibly prevent this from happening again if people knew that the penalty was going to be pretty severe if they did it. And so it's, you know, it's 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 indicative of what we're seeing in the public safety arena right now with uh, so many other things. And I, uh, people really want a change, and they want to see people being held accountable for the crimes that they're committing. And this is illegal to block a freeway. I mean, it's just, it is.
2: Yeah, you wouldn't know it, but, but it certainly is. Yeah, well, you
3: <laughs> wouldn't know it We just we seem to see these things. And it's not the first time that this has happened. And the other piece is if we don't change the law, it's going to happen again, because, again, there's nothing that there's no teeth in in the law. And it says, you know, oh, it's just a misdemeanor. It's not a big deal. Uh, This is a little more of a big deal. A Class C felony is a bigger deal. Well,
2: let's talk about the key provisions of House Bill 2358. One of them is increased penalties for obstructing highways. Talk about the, the penalties that would be imposed under this legislation.
1: Well, with
3: a Class C felony, uh, you immediately have a higher monetary penalty. In the bill, it starts at $5,000, a minimum $5,000 fine. Uh, In addition to that, you have jail time, 30 days. I mean, you have that potential of having to actually serve some jail time for doing this. It escalates up in the sense that if you are an organizer, if you are uh, somebody who has get this done it before i imagine several of those people have done it before if you've been convicted of this before you can face a higher level of that felony with a higher monetary penalty goes up to six beyond six thousand dollars and up to 60 days in jail so the penalties are significant and uh you know this is what needs to be as a tool, as we know, it always used to be that you had strong penalties and strong criminal justice system that would discourage people from committing these crimes.
2: Yeah, and that certainly has not been the case uh, in Washington and other places around the country as well. I know here in the oh, no. in the in Oregon, we have uh, some struggles with that same thing. Are you getting support from fellow lawmakers? Is this, are you optimistic that this will, in fact be successful?
3: Well, I will start with the support piece. Um, the support has been uh, very good. Uh, of course, uh, in our caucus, I think we had 35, 40 of my uh, colleagues in the Republican caucus sign on to the bill. But more importantly, I had a Democrat co-sponsor in uh, Representative David Hackney. He represents a community in the Puget Sound region. Uh, he has very much been spoken on, you know, listening to his constituents who are saying, hey, crime is rampant in our communities. He's a public safety guy and uh, he signed on as my co-sponsor i think four or five other democrats did sign on to this bill so the total is about 45 people that have signed on so good support from the members of the legislature the problem is this bill and i heard some inside scoop yesterday is probably not even going to get a hearing in the public safety committee that is very telling if they're not willing to even hear a bill of this significance and they're more concerned about continuing down the road of decriminalization and some of the policies that are coming up in front of our legislature this year would just make your head spin, uh, that's, that's telling, and it is problematic because it's, in my opinion, going against the will of the people. I've had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not more, uh, constituent emails, phone calls, uh, people reaching out. We've done a ton of media. This really struck a chord, and people said it's about time. Please, thank you for doing this. Please, thank you for the common sense. We need more of these type of bills. We need more accountability. And, you know, it just is really frustrating when the legislature, the majority here, uh, doesn't listen and they go the opposite way, which they have been uh, for, for years now.
2: Well, part of the reason they feel they can do that is if they don't hear from their constituents and it costs them nothing. If there's not a deterrence for them, then it's probably not likely it's going to move forward. Yeah. What do you suggest um, Washington residents do to encourage this public safety committee to take up this issue of public safety, to take it seriously, and to yeah. give it at least a hearing?
3: Well, I would continue. You know, you've got to reach out to your legislators. Um, you've got to send in emails, phone calls. Uh, organizations can put together, you know, uh, threads that they can kind of blast out uh, emails, but it, they they need to do that. And I'm I'm sure I'm talking to some other colleagues, They're getting the same emails, so there's a multiplier effect here. It's just it it's unfortunate. It falls on deaf ears. It it is unfortunate. It goes against the ideologies and the policies that they feel that they need to put forth. Um, but we should not be discouraged. We must keep the pressure on we must keep working these issues it's just like our initiatives that we we have here mm-hmm. in the state of washington record number of people sign these initiatives these are going to be considered these are going to get to the ballot the people are going to speak because we're getting to a point where it's tipping it's it's getting to a point where people are just they want their communities back they want to feel safe and secure as they should. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so um, don't stop. I, I, you know, even if this doesn't get a hearing, it's not going to stop me. I'm going to keep pushing as long as I'm here in session, as long as I you know, can do the things I'm doing. I'm going to keep pushing for this bill to be heard. Uh, and maybe just maybe the pressure gets to a certain point that they will, in fact, hear it. And maybe it kind of moves along. You know, they could hear the bill, listen to the people and let it go through the process. And if we need to amend or come to a happy medium or somewhere, that's the process that the people yeah. want us to do.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, I commend you for introducing the bill and thank would encourage you. our listeners to be in touch with their lawmakers, to let them know this is important to me. I'm watching <laughs> and there, there will be a, a follow up, if you will. Well, yeah, Representative anytime. Marcus, thank you so much for joining us and we'll continue to follow this and we'll see if maybe you can get a hearing.
3: Thank you. I appreciate you, and uh, I appreciate the opportunity to talk
2: about it. Hey, Have thanks. a great day. You too. Bye-bye. I guess the word is do not grow weary in doing well. Communicate with lawmakers what's important to you. They need to hear from you and know that you're paying attention. All right, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, and we'll be back to continue our march through some of the day's headlines. Stay with us. You're listening
1: to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, a pro-Palestinian protest in Washington, D.C., got pretty unruly on Saturday night. Activists there nearly breached an exterior White House gate and clashed with riot police. They rushed against the reinforced gate, an extra security measure installed in front of the primary White House gate, causing it to shake while some tried to scale the structure. Police and presumably some Secret Service agents waited on the other side to deter demonstrators. Break it down, one protester bellowed. Uh, amid the uh, uh, the noise, you support the murdering of children, another protester said. Well, objects such as bottles are seen being thrown over the fence and footage of the incident. Some staff members and members of the press were evacuated from the parts of the White House as the chaos unfolded Saturday night. During the demonstration near the White House complex, a, a portion of the anti-scaling fence uh, that was erected for... Uh, The event sustained temporary damage. The U.S. Secret Service announced the issues were promptly repaired on site by U.S. Secret Service support teams. Well, as a precaution, some members of the media and staff in proximity to Pennsylvania Avenue were temporarily relocated while the issue was being addressed. The Secret Service made no arrests associated with the march and there was no property damage to the White House or adjacent buildings. Metropolitan Police Department chief who oversees Washington, D.C. police rebuked protest activity that devolved into. Lawlessness in a statement. The right to peacefully protest is one of the cornerstones of our democracy, Constitutional Republic, and the Metropolitan Police Department has long supported those who visit our city to demonstrate safely. However, violence, destructive behavior and criminal activities are not tolerated. Well, protesters in front of the White House Saturday night also chanted Yemen, Yemen, make us proud. Turn another ship around. Well, they're doing more than turning them around. That was after the U.S. deployed strikes on a radar site involving uh, uh, rather controlled by Houthi uh, militants. Well, the strike contents consisted of warships and submarines launched Tomahawk missiles and fighter jets, U.S. officials said. The U.S. action came in response to a series of drone and missile attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea, which the Houthis Uh, boasted had resulted in multiple casualties in addition to trade disruption. The U.S. Navy on Friday cautioned American vessels to avoid areas around Yemen in the Red Sea and the Gulf of Aden, for a period following the initial airstrikes, but they have continued. These airstrikes are in direct response to unprecedented Houthi attacks against international maritime vessels in the Red Sea, including the use of anti-ship ballistic missiles for the first time in history, the president said in a statement. I will not hesitate to direct further measures to protect our people and the, f- the free flow of international commerce necessary. There was an announcement made earlier in the day f- from the Houthis indicating they are not concerned about the United States and its Western allies, they will continue their bombardment. So apparently our efforts at determent um, are not working. Well, self-described anarchists boasted that they torched a car parked in front of a city commissioner's home early Friday morning here in Portland. A 2024 Honda Accord caught fire about 1.30 a.m. on Friday outside Commissioner Rene Gonzalez's home. No one was hurt and firefighters were able to extinguish the flames. They found evidence suggesting the fire was intentionally set, according to the Portland Police Bureau, which is investigating the incident as arson. The accord belonging to a family member, according to the statement uh, from uh, Gonzalez. On Monday, a local blog that publishes uh, publishes zines and calls to action for anarchists and radicals in Portland shared a post in which anarchists claimed responsibility for the act of community self-defense. So that's what they're calling it, community self-defense. Um, this was accomplished with a fire starter, which can be found in the outdoors section of any big box store, an anonymous blogger wrote. Our only regret is not attacking the other two vehicles parked outside the home. A spokesperson for the police bureau didn't comment on whether the blog post was part of the investigation. But vandals have frequently targeted Gonzalez, a political newcomer who branded himself as a centrist and supporter of law and order. The windows of his campaign headquarters were smashed on several occasions ahead of the 22 election in which he ousted incumbent Joanne Hardesty, who advocated for defunding the police. Lawlessness is rampant. In other news, Hunter Biden's New York City art dealer lashed out in defense of the first son following his closed door deposition before the House Oversight Committee last week, arguing the halls of Congress was where the real influence peddling happens. In an email to uh, Fox News Digital, the owner of the George's um, art gallery in Manhattan that showcases Biden's paintings decried the focus on his business as part of the impeachment inquiry into President Biden, all while the pigs, and I'm quoting, are are out uh, uh, are at the trough rather in Washington, D.C., end quote. Well, broadly speaking, if the issue is selling influence, then no one needs to look outside Washington, D.C., as there are plenty of lobbyists advertising all the influence they have for sale on K Street, he went on to suggest. Well, the Supreme Court on Wednesday heard a pair of oral arguments on an issue that could dramatically shrink the power of the executive agencies to interpret and enforce federal laws. It's, uh, billed as the fight. Between what one side calls unchecked government overreach and the other see as necessary protection of the broad swath of areas like environmental health, workplace safety and consumer laws. Well, rulings are expected by late June. The justices will hear two separate appeals involving the same issue, whether Atlantic herring fishermen must pay for federal officials to board their vessels to monitor the catches and collect data. The National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration implemented a revised federal mandate back in 2020, even though Congress never gave the agency specific authority to launch such a program. Well, the owners say the fees can exceed $700 daily and often exceed the money earned from catching low-priced herring. Well, the NOAA, the National Oceanic, Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration, has waived the rule temporarily, saying it ran short of funds to administer the monitoring program. Well, the high court for four decades has endorsed the broad discretion owed Federal agencies in what has been known as Chevron deference, referring to the 1984 case that established the precedent Chevron USA Inc. versus NRDC. The fishing fleets and business groups say that their livelihoods are being threatened with onerous, expensive regulations that Congress did not specifically authorize. They say judges, not federal bureaucrats, should be interpreting what are admittedly often ambiguous congressional statutes. Well, a pro-life diaper company is quoting Elon Musk as part of its new ad campaign featuring a billboard in Times Square. Every Life officially kicked off its Make More Babies campaign on Wednesday in the heart of the Big Apple ahead of Saturday's March for Life in Washington, D.C. The two-part billboard features a post um, Musk made in September reading, Having Children is Saving the World. The ad will run 30 minutes straight on Wednesday and will have regular appearances over the next five days. The billboard is also accompanied by a video. Uh, It's an ad combating what... Every day of every life calls population control ideologies that have been pushed in recent years, specifically as a progressive solution to slow down the effects of climate change. We're going to take a break, but we'll continue to work our way through some of the day's headlines. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Pepperdine University President Jim Gash is urging university leaders to reclaim the higher purpose of education, informing students' character in light of scandals rocking college campuses. Ivy League universities' struggle with uh, anti-Semitism and plagiarism have dominated headlines in recent months. Anti-American ideologies have infiltrated college campuses, critics say, and have weakened academic standards, Americans' confidence in these institutions has also plummeted, dropping from 57 percent in 2015 to 36 percent in 2023, according to a July 23 poll by Gallup. These trends reveal higher learning has failed to provide far too many students the character-forming experiences necessary for a free and flourishing society, Gash recently wrote in Newsweek. Former President Trump is dominating the polls in an early voting state's. In all early voting states, putting him more than 30 points ahead of his closest competitor, according to new polling. Trump, who solidified his standing as the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination after winning the first in the nation Iowa caucuses on Monday night, now has his sights set on New Hampshire. He traveled to the Granite State this week after his Iowa victory in which he dominated his GOP opponents by winning 98 of 99 counties. He ultimately collected 20 delegates in the state. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis came in second place in Iowa, and Haley came in third. Businessman Vivek Ramaswamy, he came in fourth and has dropped out uh, later that night, announcing his full endorsement and support of Trump. He later appeared with the former president on a political uh, event. Well, with six days to go until New Hampshire's Republican presidential primary, a new poll indicates former President Trump remains the clear frontrunner with former ambassador, former Uh, South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley firmly in second place and Florida Governor Ron DeSantis a distant third. Trump, who is running a third straight time for the White House, grabs 50 percent support among those likely to vote in Tuesday's New Hampshire GOP presidential primary, according to a survey released on Wednesday by Suffolk University, the Boston Globe and NBC 10 in Boston. Haley, who served as ambassador to the United Nations during the Trump administration, stands at 34 percent support with DeSantis at 5%. 6% said they were undecided, and 3% were backing another candidate. The poll was conducted on Monday and Tuesday evening, during and after Trump scored a massive victory in Monday night's Iowa caucuses, the first contest of the GOP presidential nominating calendar. Well, federal investigators asked banks to search and filter customer transactions by using terms like MAGA and Trump, As part of an investigation into January 6th, warning that purchases of religious texts could indicate extremism. That's according to House Judiciary Committee, revealing on Wednesday a letter obtained uh, by media. Well, it was been learned that the committee also obtained documents that indicate officials suggesting that banks query transactions with keywords like uh, Dick's Sporting Goods, Cabela's, uh, Bass uh, Pro Shop, and more. The House Judiciary Committee and its subcommittee on the weaponization of the federal government have been conducting oversight of federal law enforcement's receipt of information about American citizens without legal process and its engagement with the private sector. Well, according to this analysis... Uh, They warn the financial institutions of extremism indicators that include transportation charges such as bus tickets, rental cars or plane tickets for travel areas with no apparent purpose or the purchase of books, including religious texts and subscriptions to other media containing extremism, extremist views. Jordan detailed in a letter to the former director, um, a career employee, in other words, Um, They use large financial institutions to comb through the private transactions of their customers for suspicious charges on the basis of protected political and religious expression, Jordan wrote. Well, he and the committee are requesting um, that the leader of this financial institution appear for a transcribed interview on the matter, saying he may possess information necessary for oversight. This is wholly unacceptable if, in fact, it's been characterized Accurately. CNN anchor Caitlin Collins stood by the now infamous 2023 Donald Trump town hall that became the epicenter of controversy, both inside and outside the network, arguing that the likely Republican presidential nominee can't be ignored. Well, back in May, Collins had a combative exchange with a former president who broke his longstanding boycott of CNN to participate in a televised town hall with an audience full of his supporters. The two of them sparred over several topics, including January 6th, as well as his repeated claims that the 2020 presidential election was stolen. In an interview with Elle magazine published on Wednesday, Collins argued that Trump would have gotten the attention he seeks regarding, uh, regardless of whether CNN did the town hall or not. Though she acknowledged that the debates over how news organizations report and cover the former president is a conversation that we need to have on the constant basis. I don't think you can ignore someone who is the Republican frontrunner and likely if it was uh, tomorrow, the GOP nominee, she went on to say. Well, Wednesday, MSNBC host Rachel Maddow had something of a meltdown on a panel after Trump won the Iowa caucuses. She also acknowledged the media is colluding to censor Trump. It's not breaking news that MSNBC is anti-Trump. It is unusual for a progressive activist who plays a political show host on MSNBC to level with the audience about its political bias. Maddow explained that Trump won in Iowa and he was beginning to speak. She went on to say MSNBC and other news outlets have stopped airing his speeches live because they don't air untrue things. Well, one could debate that point, whether it's centered on Trump or not. Report reporter, Michael Schellenberger said MSNBC host um, Maddow says NBC and other mainstream news networks have decided not to show Trump's victory speech. CNN had him on briefly, but then cut away and replaced him with Jake Tapper, who says caucus goers believe the lie. Uh, Joy Reid said that Iowa is overrepresented by white Christians and Colin Rugg, far-left MSNBC host Rachel Maddow, has a meltdown after fascist Donald Trump's solid performance in the Iowa caucuses. If we're worried about our democracy falling to an authoritarian and potentially fascist form of government, the leader who is trying to do that is part of the equation. It's much bigger part of that equation. Uh, anyway, the meltdown continues, the derangement syndrome, as it was coined uh, last time around in other news, President Biden reversed course and redesignated the Houthi rebel group, a terrorist organization. There are still questions as to why that was changed when he took office uh, following uh, Donald Trump's designation. But Uh, What took so long is the question now being asked. The administration plans to and has put the Houthi rebel group back on its uh, list of terrorist organizations days after the, the U.S. launched strikes on its facilities in Yemen to retaliate for months of attacks on commercial vessels in the Red Sea. The placement as a specially designated global terrorist group, which the U.S. plans to formally announce on Wednesday, reverses the decision made early in President Biden's term to remove them from that list over concerns it hurt prospects for peace talks and further crippling the economy of an impoverished nation at risk of famine. Well, the Trump administration first put the Houthis on the list. The designation bars people or companies in the U.S. from offering just about any kind of support to the group and prohibits its members from entering the U.S. It also requires U.S. financial institutions to freeze any funds they hold belonging to the group or under its control. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Uh, We are out of time for our Seattle listeners. I hope you'll join us here tomorrow Uh, for the Portland audience. Stay with us. We'll be back in a moment.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. This is the Portland-only portion of the Georgine Rice Show. Now, we were anticipating a conversation with Wendy Palau. She's one of the keynote speakers at Mission Connection this Friday and Saturday at Sunset Church. Unfortunately, we were unable to connect, uh, but I do want to just emphasize the fact that she will be the keynote speaker. uh, That will be on uh, Friday night. If you can make it, I would highly encourage you to do so. She is just a... Such a gifted evangelist, she has been leading outreaches to women around the world as part of the Palau Festivals and media campaigns that reach millions every week through daily Hope with God radio programs and digital strategies. She's the author of Stories of Hope. It's an anthology of diverse stories from women around the world highlighting how they found hope in Christ amidst their darker moments. Anyway, I'm sorry that we weren't able to present her for you here today, but she will be speaking at Mission Connection. On Friday night. Also speaking at Mission Connection, Sean McDowell, um, Mark Middleberg, and we've had one change in the uh, the lineup, which you'll learn more about on Friday night at Mission Connection. Just a reminder uh, the event remains free, and that is because there are generous donors who make that possible, but you do need to register. If you haven't done so yet, go to missionconnection.global. And register to attend Friday night and all day Saturday. You can go to their website for all the important details, the schedule, the uh, workshops, and all of that. uh, And I would encourage you uh, to do it. It's going to be another great uh, conference uh, this Friday night and Saturday at Sunset Church. Well, returning to some of the day's headline, and by the way, we're going to have a, an opportunity to hear from a Middle Eastern pastor. I'm not going to go into much detail. You'll learn more at the, uh, the conference. But uh, in light of what I'm just about to share, this is a, an encouragement to know that God is at work even there and in the Middle East. Um, I'm, I'm excited. Okay. Well, Iran once again defies international law and threatens to rapidly increase already high tensions there in the Middle East. They've launched attacks in Pakistan targeting what is described as bases for the militant group uh, Jaish al-Adil, and I'm sure I mispronounced that, potentially further raising tensions in the Middle East, already roiled by Israel's war on Hamas in the Gaza. Well, Pakistan said that the uh, strikes killed two children and wounded three others in an assault it described as an unprovoked violation of its airspace. The attack inside the nuclear-armed Pakistan by Iran threatens the relations between the two countries, which long have eyed each other as with suspicion while maintaining diplomatic relations. Well, the attack also follows Iranian strikes on Iraq and Syria less than a day earlier. So things could uh, continue to escalate very rapidly. And of course, Iran is a major player in the uh, conflict between Israel and Gaza, what's happening uh, in the Red Sea and, and so on. Uh, the Uh, Organizations, the terror groups under their uh, watchful eye and um, sponsorship are playing a significant role there. In other news, British oil major Shell PLC suspended all shipments through the Red Sea indefinitely as U.S. and U.K. strikes on Yemen's rebels triggered fear of further escalation. According to people in the region, the West's targeting of the Iran ally militia came after the Houthis. They launched dozens of missiles and drones at commercial vessels around the Red Sea and the nearby uh, area. The militia has said the attacks are in response to an Israeli offensive in the Gaza Strip. Around 12 percent of the total global seaborne oil trade goes through the Red Sea. So this is significant. They've targeted a tanker by Shell on its way to carry Indian jet fuel through the Red Sea last month. And Shell has simply indicated no more. Speaker Mike Johnson is publicly and privately panning the Senate's ongoing border and immigration negotiations. Senate Republicans are reminding him that it's the best deal he'll ever get. Republican senators said on Tuesday that they see only worse opportunities ahead to craft a border bill that can pass, given that Democrats who run the Senate and the White House are now considering major changes to asylum policy, new expulsion authorities, and perhaps even putting limits on presidential parole authority. If Republicans try to wait for a better deal after after November's election, senators say they could end up with GOP control over Congress and the White House. But Democrats who are in no mood to deal on the issue must be dealt with now. It, uh, if Republicans uh, try to wait, that could be um, more challenging for them. Well, the Supreme Court heard a case that could strike a blow to admit the administrative shape, uh, state, rather. In Chevron, the court directed lower courts to give agencies greater leeway in administrating broadly worded statutes. When a statute, say a provision of the Clean Air Act, is not clear but ambiguous, then the um, the courts should generally defer to the agency's reasonable interpretation of the statute. Following the federal court's mismanagement of federal agencies, especially agency deregulatory efforts in the 70s and 80s, Chevron was originally defended as a way to ensure that judges didn't supplant presidential administration policy judgments. Well, Chevron, the decision was intended to elevate both expertise and political accountability in presidential administrations, simplify judicial review, and reinforce Congress's central role in American government. In hindsight, however, it fell far short of all of those objectives, uh, objectives rather, and may well have undermined uh, those objectives. So the Supreme Court heard a case that could strike a blow to uh, that, that well, Chevron, I'll just put it that way. Well, pro-Hamas activists uh, have been arrested by Capitol Police for illegally occupying the Cannon House office building. Is this considered an insurrection, one wonders? Well, on Tuesday, the U.S. Capitol Police arrested 130 people for illegally protesting at the Cannon House office building and yet another pro-Hamas demonstration. The arrests uh, came less than three months after a pro-Hamas agitator, agitators plural, were similarly illegally protesting in Cannon, with uh, arrests being made at the time there as well. Well, the House called off votes due to winter storms in Washington, uh, though the Senate is still operating so as to avert a government shutdown. Um, 130 arrests in connection to the demonstration. Interesting how it will be uh, characterized by those who believe insurrection is the worst thing that could possibly happen. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley has declined to participate in the upcoming debates. The former South Carolina governor and presidential candidate announced Tuesday morning that she will not participate in the upcoming Republican primary debate in New Hampshire. The two debates in the Granite State were set for Thursday and Saturday uh, because she withdrew. Um, there will not be a debate. It would have been a single attendee. Nikki Haley said, I've had five great debates in this campaign. Unfortunately, Donald Trump has ducked all of them. He has uh, nowhere left to hide. The next debate I do will either be with Donald Trump or with Joe Biden. I look forward to it. A recent regulatory change by the administration is so poorly designed, there's no telling exactly how many workers will be hurt. From actors and designers to truckers and construction workers, it's been uh, said that the same thing over and over. Independent contracting uh, gives workers the flexibility to pursue their passions, either full-time or on the side. Well, a new labor rule from the president decimates independent contracting. As many as 73 million Americans who are independent contractors could lose that freedom. So may every American who might have pursued this path in the future. On the 10th of January, President Biden's Labor Department issued a new rule that will gut independent contracting nationwide. And while the department and much of the media are framing the rule as a win for workers, it's anything but. The administration, which claims the rule, will make it easier for workers to get employment benefits, overtime pay and minimum wage. It really is looking out for the interests of labor unions, which have struggled to organize independent contractors and find it much easier to go after traditional employers. There's nothing pro-worker about uh, stifling uh, workers in favor of um, special interests, and that's precisely what this legislation will do. You can read more about that in National Review, by the way. Well, President Biden's Department of Justice admits Hunter Biden's laptop is, in fact, authentic. The Department of Justice has acknowledged the legitimacy of Hunter Biden's infamous laptop data for the first time in a new court filing. In a Tuesday court filing, the department prosecutors, which uh, came in response to Biden's request to have his federal firearm charges dismissed, investigators acknowledged the legitimacy of data found on the Biden laptop prior to the 2020 election. The court filings described how IRS and FBI investigators Investigators had obtained a search warrant for tax violations on Biden, the uh, junior, leading them to various back uh, backup data accounts. Representative Jim Jordan says that uh, the Department of Justice now admits that the Biden laptop is legitimate. Will House Democrats finally stop calling it a conspiracy? Well, we'll just have to wait and see. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment. So stay with us.
1: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
2: Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Do want to remind you that Mission Connection is scheduled to begin tomorrow night at Sunset Church on Cornell Road in Portland. The admission is free, but you do need to register. You can uh, register online at missionconnection.global. Um, there are four national speakers to be featured. Wendy Palau, Sean McDowell, Robert Levy, and uh, Mark Middleberg, and uh, there are 98 workshops, 100 exhibitors. It's um, going to be a great, I should say 80 workshops and uh, 100 exhibitors. It's going to be another great missions conference. Uh, We hope that you will join us to every generation and nation. Mission Connection 2024. Well, a Democrat introduced a censure resolution against GOP Conference Chair Elise Stefanik. Representative Dan Goldman, the Democrat, will introduce a resolution to censure fellow Empire State Republican Representative Stefanik. Uh, slamming her for comments referring to January 6th insurrectionists as hostages and accusing her of peddling voter fraud conspiracies. Goldman claims the uh, that Eck, the chair of the House Republican Conference, has been a congressional cheerleader for former President Donald Trump, putting her personal ambitions over her integrity. Democrats have widely condemned her for her rhetoric, referring to individuals who were found guilty of crimes related to the assault on the Capitol as hostages. Jake Sherman, a reporter, says Johnson made a rare hallway statement on this. I just heard about uh, Goldman's censure resolution against Elise Stefanik. I think it's patently absurd. She's one of the best leaders and best communicators in Congress. She is uh, doing an exceptional job. And the idea that he would use censure to attack a political opponent is just ridiculous. End quote. So things are not looking any rosier in the halls of Congress. Well, interest payments on our national debt reveal the issue with tax the rich Well, the combined net worth of the most prominent billionaires in the United States would not be enough to pay a single year's interest payment on America's ballooning national debt, which currently stands at an astounding thirty four trillion dollars. The combined net worth of some America's most prominent billionaires, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, Ken Griffin, uh, Mark Cuban. Ray Dalio, George Soros adds up to approximately seven hundred and twenty six billion dollars. Meanwhile, the net interest on our national debt is currently seven hundred and thirty point eight billion dollars, dwarfing the sum for previous years. The comparison signifies that increased taxation suggested by Democrats uh, isn't um, a viable path toward erasing the national debt, especially as interest payments pile up. The United States collected $4.4 trillion in federal taxes in fiscal year 2023, up from $4.19 trillion in fiscal year 22, yet the debt increased by more than $2 trillion. The national debt itself is also set to reach new highs in coming years, currently on a trajectory to reach over $46 trillion by 2028 at a ratio of over $300,000 in debt for every American taxpayer. Well, a judge in Maine stalled a decision on Keep to keep Trump on the ballot until the Supreme Court gives its decision. The Maine judge deferred his decision on whether former President Trump is disqualified from the state's ballot under the 14th Amendment on Wednesday, allowing the Supreme Court to first weigh in on uh, the extraordinary dispute. The secretary of state ruled last month that Trump was disqualified, making Maine the second state to do so and leading the former president to appeal the decision in court. Superior Court Justice Michaela Murphy, who was assigned the appeal, declined to weigh in on the merits of the ruling uh, issued on Wednesday. Instead, Murphy slammed the brakes until the Supreme Court resolves a, a similar case challenging Trump's ballot eligibility that arose from Colorado. In the meantime, Trump's name will remain on the ballot in Maine. GOP House committee uncovered the facts that China mapped out the covid virus two weeks before telling the world. Well, Chinese researchers in Beijing uploaded a nearly complete sequence of COVID virus structure to a U.S. database run by the National Institutes of Health on December 28th. 2019. That's two weeks before Beijing shared the viral sequence with the rest of the world. The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services documents recently obtained by the House committee revealed when Beijing shared the SARS-CoV-2 sequence with the World Health Organization on the 11th of January. Two full weeks had elapsed since the virus was sequenced by a researcher at the Institute of Pathogen Biology in Beijing, an arm of the state affiliated Chinese Academy of Medicine of Medical Science. Sciences, which has ties to the Communist Party. These two weeks represent a crucial period in the evolution of the pandemic as the international health community scrambled to assess and respond to the burgeoning viral threat. In late 2019, scientists across the globe were racing to understand the viral disease that would eventually kill millions. During that period, Chinese officials still describe the disease outbreak as uh, in Wuhan, China, as a viral pneumonia of unknown cause to the greater public. The discovery that a researcher in the state-affiliated Chinese lab had isolated and mapped the virus well before Beijing revealed publicly that it had done so shows the U.S. cannot trust any of the so-called facts or data provided by the CCP and calls into uh, serious question the legitimacy of any scientific theories based on such information. McMorris Rogers uh, said in a a statement in response that can be uh, read in full in the Wall Street Journal. CNN and ABC canceled debates in New Hampshire after only Governor DeSantis accepted the invitation. GOP presidential candidates will not go head-to-head on a debate stage in New Hampshire before the primary next week now that CNN and ABC News have both canceled their scheduled debates. A spokesperson from CNN said Wednesday that the network was canceling the debate scheduled for Sunday as only one qualified candidate accepted that invitation. The change comes a day after ABC News canceled its Thursday debate after former U.N. Ambassador Nikki Haley said she would, step, would not step foot on a debate stage again. If uh, Donald Trump or Joe Biden uh, was there, I think clarifying the point, she would if they were there. She won't since they're not. Okay. Well, the majority of Americans uh, support banning affirmative action practices in college admissions. In October, a poll found that more than 6 in 10 Americans support banning the consideration of race in college admissions. Broken down, 63% of all American adults surveyed said that they would support the Supreme Court banning colleges and universities from considering a student's race and ethnicity when making decisions about student admissions. Now, a new poll is showing that Two in three Americans, at 68%, say the Supreme Court's uh, decision to end the use of race and ethnicity in admissions uh, is mostly a good thing. Well, on this day in history, 1998, I should say, I should say 1778, English navigator Captain James Cook reached the present-day Hawaiian Islands, which he names the Sandwich Islands. 1911, the first landing of an aircraft on a ship takes place as pilot Eugene B. Eli, brings his Curtis biplane in for a safe landing on the deck of the armored cruiser USS Pennsylvania in San Francisco Harbor. 1919, the Paris Peace Conference held, no, held to negotiate peace treaties ending the First World War opens in Versailles, France. 1943, a U.S. ban on the sale of pre-sliced bread. A ban on the sale of pre sliced bread aimed at reducing bakeries' demand for metal replacement parts goes into effect. 1957, a trio of B 52s complete the first non stop, round the world flight by jet planes, landing at uh, March Air Force Base in California after more than 45 hours aloft. 1991, financially strapped Eastern Airlines shut down after more than six decades in business. 1993, a holiday for Martin Luther King Jr. is observed in all 50 states for the first time. 2005, on this day in history, the world's largest commercial jet, the Airbus A380 Super Jumbo, capable of flying up to 800 passengers, is unveiled in Toulouse, France. Well, we are just about out of time. I do want to thank um, James Blind for producing, Dave King for engineering, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hope to see you at Mission Connection tomorrow and Saturday. Have a good night.
1: Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook and join us live every weekday at four for more critical thinking for critical times. On 93.9 KPDQ